this is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our readings for this weekend have a special resonance, I think, for our time. For they have to do with the resurrection of the body. And we're in the grip of a secularist ideology that denies the transcendent order altogether and certainly life after death. If you're a strict secularist, you'd hold that all that exists is matter in motion and that at our death, our minds and memories just evanesce and our bodies return to the dust from which they came. Standard sort of secularist reading of what death is about. Now, it might surprise you a bit to know that for much of ancient Israelite history, though they didn't deny the transcendent, they believed in God, but belief in an individual afterlife was not widely held. Remember when the psalmist prays or or observes, Lord, can dust give you praise? Well, what he means is, you know, once people have died, they can't praise him anymore. He's assuming this lack of belief in um, afterlife. That's why our second reading, or rather our reading for today from 2 Maccabees, is so interesting because it's one of the strongest and relatively rare Old Testament passages that clearly asserts the truth of life after death. The setting for the story, you know, is uh, fascinating. Around the middle of the 2nd century B.C., so around the year like 165, 160 B.C., Israel was overrun by Greeks, the political descendants of Alexander the Great, who attempted to impose their culture on the Israelites. You know, by the way, this rationale is, is always offered by conquerors. Desire to spread the benefit of their own civilization to people who don't have it. I don't think we have to be... um, necessarily cynical about ancient Greece and Rome or Charlemagne or Napoleon or even George W. Bush to say that that all felt there was something good and true about their cultures and they were eager to offer it, even through military imposition on neighboring states. So that's the setting for Maccabees. These Hellenizers wanted to impose their culture on Israel, but the imposition was aggressively resisted by Israel under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. And a terrible war ensued. And of course, there's something about wars like this that are particularly terrible, aren't they? It was during this extremely difficult period that the episode from our first reading took place. A Jewish mother with her seven sons is brought before the king. And they're invited, they're, they're told they have to eat pork, which is against, of course, Jewish uh, ritual. And so one by one, the sons are murdered in front of their mother. The speeches delivered by the sons are magnificent, and our reading now recounts some of these speeches. 
one son says just before he dies, we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. And a second son says, as he puts out his hands to be cut off, listen now, it was from heaven that I received these. For the sake of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to receive them again. And then a last brother, just before he dies, says this. It is my choice to die at the hands of men with the hope that God gives of being raised up by him. Now, what I want you to see is there's much more here than simply a story of courage. I mean, it is that indeed, a great story of courage, but we could find similar stories in just about any other political or religious tradition. What I mean are are great martyrs, people willing to sacrifice themselves for their belief. But what I want you to see is the unique, even peculiar theology that is behind these courageous speeches, the unique perspective that undergirds them. These young men are not advocating or operating out of a Puritanism or a dualism that amounts to despising matter or despising this life. They are not saying to this cruel world, you know, goodbye and good riddance. They're not operating out of a a platonic dualism that would say, oh, well, thank God we can finally escape from our bodies. What a joy, you're releasing my soul from the strictures of the body. Well, how do we know this? How do we know this is not what they're advocating? We know it because even as they are throwing their hands and tongues and bodily lives away, they are fully expecting them back. Now, let me just say that again. Because it's the distinctively now, biblical and eventually Catholic view, even as they are throwing tongues, hands, bodily life away, they are fully expecting them back. The risen life they are anticipating, and again, this is right in line with the resurrection of Jesus. The risen life they're anticipating is not a purely spiritual one. As I say, it's not Plato's fantasy of a disembodied existence. Rather, it's one that involves tongues, hands, bodies. It is, if you want, this life in the full sense of the term, but raised to a higher pitch of perfection. What the church will later refer to as the glorified body. It's against this extraordinary background provided by 2nd Maccabees that we should consider our gospel for today. The setting is a conversation, rather heated conversation, I imagine, between Jesus and some of the Sadducees. Now, who were the Sadducees? We know the Pharisees probably a little bit better. The Sadducees were a, a, a sect within Judaism who believed a number of things, but they're they're probably most famous or infamous 
for holding it, there is no life after death. And again, to be fair, as I mentioned, that's a very long and very ancient tradition within Israel, within religious Israel. This is not secularism uh, in our sense. But there were Jews who did not believe there was life after death. So the Sadducees are challenging Jesus, and they do so through this famous dilemma, which is an example of what the logicians would call the reductio ad absurdum, reducing a position to absurdity if you keep pressing on its implications, right? So famously is this uh, woman who uh, marries seven successive uh, men, each one uh, dying. Now at the resurrection, which one is her husband? She married all seven. So it's, it's a clever, uh, maybe a little bit sophomoric attempt to back Jesus rhetorically into a corner, is to reduce the belief in life after death to a sort of absurdity. Jesus, of course, is having none of it. And his response, I would say, is a full articulation of what the heroic Maccabee brothers were hinting at. The dead shall indeed rise, he says. So he stands in this Maccabee tradition. He stands here with the Pharisees who believed in life after death, not with the Sadducees. What's his argument? He says, otherwise, how could Moses have spoken of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of whom were long dead by Moses' time? How could he speak of the living God as the God of these three long dead figures unless Somehow, they were alive for God. But now, here's where things get interesting. But risen existence, which is indeed bodily, is indeed in continuity with what's come before, will, Jesus says, be transformed, transfigured, raised up. So he says, those who come into the resurrection will be like angels, and they will not marry or be given in marriage. Now, mind you, be very careful here. He's not saying, oh, that's because marriage is a bad thing. And so, thank God we finally got that over with. This is not a Platonic fantasy. Oh, thank God we finally risen beyond the body and beyond uh, marriage and all that. No, 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 no. Jesus is a good Jew. I mean, he affirms and and celebrates marriage. What he's saying is, resurrected life will be greater than marriage because an intimacy will be achieved that is beyond our imagining. What's the greatest intimacy we can imagine now? Well, probably the intimacy of a married couple. You know, the two become one flesh. A man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Extraordinary image of intimacy, a sharing of, of body, but also of mind and heart and emotion and passion and life. Marriage, that's the, that's the strongest kind of intimacy. What's the Lord saying? In the resurrected life, which is in continuity with this one, but is at such a higher pitch of perfection, that a type of intimacy will be attained compared to which marriage is nothing. 
extraordinary. Let that sink into your hearts. Again, not, it's not denigrating the body or marriage. On the contrary, it's saying whatever you've achieved there will be at such a higher pitch of perfection that marriage will seem as though nothing. Let me make just a final point, friends, about all this. You know that from the time of Mark, certainly on, religious people get regularly pilloried as um, advocates of pie in the sky when we die, indifferent to the sufferings of the world, you know, indifferent to injustice. In fact, we make the world worse because we're pining after these uh, fantasies in the sky. But I want you to see that actually the opposite holds. I would say that those who hold to the resurrection of the body are those who are most effective at working for justice and peace in this world. Why? Well, if you're a complete materialist, you're a complete secularist, you would hold that everything and everybody in the end just fades away. Right? I mean, no matter how much you achieve morally and all that, it, well, at the end of the day, everything fades away. But, but if you believe in the resurrection of the body, you believe that everything in this world is destined by God for redemption, for elevation, for a perfection beyond this life. Which means, listen, everything matters. And it matters in an ultimate sense. That's why we would fight for justice and for peace in this world. That's why some of the greatest advocates of it, I'm thinking of John Paul II and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and on and on Dorothy Day, were precisely believers in the resurrection. Let this great doctrine, friends, sort of wash over your minds and hearts today. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.